This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, I had author Don Watson join me to talk about his article in The Monthly, A Pack of Bankers. We discussed the Banking Royal Commission and the rise of managerial speak. Then, Daniel Shamovitz, Dean of the Faculty of Life Sciences at Tel Aviv University and author of What a Plant Knows, A Field Guide to the Senses, joined me to talk about that book, which is out through Scribe Publications. And then finally, Dr Andrew McGregor, lecturer in French studies at the University of Melbourne, and Roberta Chiabara, film programmer at ACME, joined me in the studio to talk about the Jean-Luc Godard screenings at ACME, which include Redoutable, Godard Mon Amour, and Le Mépris. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. I'm pleased to announce that I have with me on the phone Don Watson, who is a author of many books, including The Bush, um, A Single Tree, Recollections of a Bleeding Heart, which of course you would uh, know given that Don in a previous life was speechwriter to Prime Minister Paul Keating. And uh, he joins me now to talk about a piece he has written in the monthly called A Pack of Bankers. Hi there, Don. Hi, Amy. Hi, thanks for joining us. And um, I, I was just saying off air, anyone who has horn swoggling in their article is um, really a fabulous person and uh, I'm so impressed. <laughs> well, you've got to watch out for horn swogglers. That's the only thing to learn from that. Indeed. I, I did have to Google it um, because, unfortunately, it's not a term I use very often, but I will be using it now. And if anyone listening is unaware of what the definition of horn swoggle is, it's to get the better of someone by cheating or deception. Um, so, yeah. yeah, the sound as well, the, the sound of horn swoggle really does encapsulate that meaning, doesn't it? Very much. I, I love the word. It, it's, I think it's American. That where, where there were many horn swagglers and still are. One of them's in the White House at the moment, I think. That is an excellent point, yes. And uh, this particular pack of horn swagglers uh, may be in, actually bankers. Um, and this whole article really is about the Royal Commission into Financial Services that's currently running. And of course, we've had uh, three hearings in Melbourne that um, have certainly revealed a lot about what our uh, financial services industry has been up to. And uh, you really highlight throughout this article the major contrast between uh, the first witness that you talk about, Karen Cox, and uh, the witnesses that follow and the kind of language that they use. Um, could you share a bit about what you what struck you the most um, when you were looking at that, uh, that witness provide evidence? Well, she was, you know, she was working on behalf of the, um, the people who'd been hornswoggled. Really, um, and she'd been. She seemed as if I think it was reasonable to assume that she'd been uh, quarantined from the language of banking and the processes of banking or of any sort of major corporate enterprise. So she spoke in plain, unaffected terms, and she didn't talk about cultural issues. Um, if you want to call it horn swoggling or whatever else, um, 
what the banks, what 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 the bankers at the Royal Commission spoke of constantly were these cultural. It's a cultural issue. So, in other words, examples of um, um, deceitful or immoral behaviour don't go to character. They go to cultural issues. They go to process, um, a breakdown process. They don't go to an attempt to gouge money from consumers. They go to process. It was a fault of the process. We all, what we need to do is go to, we'll go to PwC or EY or someone and they'll work out a better process so that we're not gouging customers anymore. So everybody, by means of the language, really, the language of managerialism and corporate fashion, um, found a way to say, well, it really wasn't crooked behaviour. It was just that we went beyond the, uh, the guidelines. We just broke away a little from our values. Whereas the first woman um, just spoke about things as ordinary human beings um, in their daily lives uh, see them that, uh, for what they are. Um, in this case, what these people in the banking industry have been doing. Had they used words, had the regulator even used like swindle and dupe and cheat and scam and gouge, well, they would have woken... The, they, you know, you can't get around words like that. They, they, they're strong verbs and they have real meanings. At the moment you retreat into the practice of managerialism, you retreat into a place that's immune to ordinary measures of character and decency. Yes, exactly. And it does bring up um, one of the points that's really been highlighted in this Royal Commission is that ASIC, um, who tend to more often than not uh, negotiate with corporations in order to reach a, an out-of-court settlement uh, when they have engaged in some kind of wrongdoing, some deception, um, this kind of practice of, of settling is, as, um, as has been said, heavily negotiated. And, uh, and this kind of practice really also um, removes that level of responsibility, personal liability as well, um, from the actions that they're taking. Because uh, obviously the repercussions are whatever um, they have themselves negotiated. It's in any other court situation, um, it's rare that you're going to or you basically won't be able to negotiate with a judge as to what your sentence should be. So I can see there that um, not only is the language around this um, practice horribly inadequate and inaccurate, but also then the practices themselves are easily um, reflecting that language. Yeah, it was interesting in that regard because I mean once once the language of the law was the sort of official language that was the, the sort of the language of authority and what was interesting watching the QCs interrogating these people was that it was it was the old official language trying to assert itself over the new and at times it was quite bizarre and uh, the Royal Commissioner looked you know, a little like he was you know watching watching some kind of uh, spectacle that he'd never seen before because it, the managerial language now, and, and, and the whole notion of sort of corporate practices is now so um, abstracted and ridiculous that really it's very hard to tell the truth in it and, and uh, hard to still to tell the truth from a lie. Um, 
one of the articles. I quote in this thing was uh, uh, written some years ago by by Rose Michael, who'd worked at one of the big four banks, and and in it, you know, she said uh, you would she'd spend weeks um, without really ever knowing quite what anyone was doing or what the meaning of communications uh, was that, that they were they were like exchanging things which seemed to be important but in the end seemed to have no consequences I think an awful lot of work in these places is actually carried out just in the name of process rather than in the name of of, of, of actually getting something done and um as she says, you know, never did people work so hard at doing nothing. I think that's for really, and, and and she concludes, you know, that really, though they talk a lot about outcomes, outcomes have nothing to do with it. But it's it's the process which is the be all and end all of work in these organisations, and I think that's reflected in the inability of these places for all their highfalutin mission statements and and values and value propositions and God knows what. Um, in the end, um, they they really don't operate in a kind of human dimension. She called it a matrix, and uh, uh, I think that's probably not too far from the truth. Yes, absolutely. Because um, you know, I've certainly noticed that uh, this there is a kind of discussion about process and structures and whenever something's wrong it's a structural issue within a system rather than the humans that make up that system and it's quite amazing to think that uh, we could shift any level of blame or intent on a system uh, that is apparently mindless and just moves and uh, conducts uh, huge kind of scams by itself um, it's obviously not possible. But as you say, Rose Michael um, is quoted in your article and I want to quote her directly because um, I did highlight it as being something that is quite revealing. You quote her to say that maybe work is not about outcomes but process, job creation, job justification. Perhaps this is not the negative side effect but the quintessence of corporate life. And you then go on to say... This must be a shocking thought. What is management about, if not outcomes? Without outcomes, the whole thing would be a joke. Life would be a joke. What next? Value propositions of no value? Action plans that inhibit action? I mean, it is really quite farcical. It's um, a bit of a circus, really, to think about all of this language that's propping up a kind of way of behaving and a a way of... um, operating that that deflects personal responsibility do you think that in this banking royal commission we might see any kind of um return or deflection back on to the individual no i doubt it (laughs) sorry i doubt it you know i think it's um i think that you know it, it it goes with the modern corporation. It probably, you know, if if we see in the longer run uh, the whole neoliberal experiment, you know, begin to collapse, um, then maybe the language which has supported it, at least parts of it, will collapse with it. For instance, you know, the, the language is in a way part of the ideology of of, of business. You know, it, it comes it comes at a time when governments step back and let and let 
the private sector take over most of those responsibilities that formerly had been public. So the public sector found terms like, oh, look, we've got to look after, you know, we've got to be very responsible now. We've taken over government responsibilities. So they came up with things like corporate social responsibility and and their mission statements and value statements and vision statements and God knows what, which, you know, they took down photos of the Queen and stuck up this stuff. I think what it, what it really... Where, where it comes undone is that, that ultimately business is about business. Uh, business is about the bottom line. So they came up with the notion of the triple bottom line, which was that it's not just about um, profits and dividends. Um, it's about responsibility to the environment or to, um, to staff and workers, to the society. But in the end, you can't have both. It's a kind of, it's a kind of juvenile fantasy to think that you can maximise your profits um, without screwing your workers and your staff or or without compromising your environment. Um, some of the examples of this internationally are, are, are truly hilarious. You know, So you have weapons manufacturers talking about their dedication to peace, um, manufacturers of, of, of um, missiles using, using reprocessed uranium, talking about their commitment to the environment um, and so on. It's a, um, there's, underneath it all is a kind of fallacy. Um, and, and beyond that, there's a, there's a sort of, a, this abstraction in the language, in a way, reflects a, 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 their abstraction from the real world. Um, and that's where I think we, we end up in, in strife, and every now and again, you know, the boil bursts with the Banking World Commission, but... That'll settle down and the same thing will happen again somewhere else and it's probably happening already. Um, you know, it's in the 19, early 1990s, the banks were out of control and almost some of, some of the big four almost fell, fell out of forever. 2008 was another great burst of the bubble and, and now we have something like this. I don't see how you get it out of the out of the system without some kind of cataclysm that we probably don't want. Yes, well, I was going to ask there, given that neoliberalism is so um, insidious, it's really everywhere, it's not even confined to banking or the corporate sector or big business. It is, you know, really present throughout many of our sectors and parts of our lives. How do we... Possibly, I mean, do you think this kind of language has not only the managerialism and the the way that we even perceive our own lives? Do you think that that kind of corporatization has permeated into other elements? Oh, absolutely! I think it's gone. You know, it's in kindergartens. It's 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 it is it is a sort of um, it is a sort of ruling ideology of modern life. Um, in many ways, at least in modern working life, um, you'll find the same sort of outcomes-based notions and processes and all the rest through education departments and 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 places, you know, and libraries and you know the last remaining public organisations are, are riddled with it, including the, the public service. Um, but not to any great effect, you know. You'll find Centrelink talking about it being an engine room of innovation. You'll talk, you know, they'll say how you know, our values driven by our goals or the other way around of 
creating this marvellous organisation, you think, well, come on, come on, it's an unemployment agency here. Um, it, you, you can hang on the phone there for an hour and a half, getting the same music. It, it's a... Um, look, it's not to say that neoliberalism neo has... You know, I remember when, you know, we were drinking Pablo and inst Instant and... Uh, reading scones actually wasn't all that bad when you think about it but you know I quite like you know the, the, the sort of the, the comforts of modern middle class life but it's got a lot wrong with it as well and I don't think one of the things that's really improved is the general morality of, of, of business and government I think it's also probably had the effect of leaving government looking like a rather damp squib you know I, I, I don't think politicians who have ever been held in lower regard and, and, and with better reason um, because government has given up so much um, it's lost a certain amount of moral authority and it's certainly lost a lot of appeal to um, intelligent people who might otherwise have gone into it well, that's a, that's an excellent point. Um, certainly, it's really obvious at the moment with people like uh, one of our former Deputy Prime Ministers, Barnaby Joyce, um, heading out and giving interviews on commercial TV for money. It's just another example of that kind of ethical um, quandary, which is that in politics, who is checking the politicians and who is... Um, you know, keeping an eye on government because if they're not, uh, you know, maintaining moral standards, how on earth can they expect others to? Yeah, well, I think that's right. I mean, I am... I, um, oh, look, you know, I won't mention Barnaby Joyce, but uh, if we can avoid it, we already <laughs> have. Um, it's just such a great no. example, unfortunately. <laughs> yes, it is, absolutely. Look, I think, it, I, I think there's just a feeling... Something has happened to the commons, and something has happened to the sense of of uh, of public spirit. Um, I I believe, and and the, the sort of national aspiration seems to me to have sort of dwindled away to. You know, they've even gone you know beneath the John Howard version, which was you know the world's greatest um, shareholder democracy. You know, is now down to something like. It just comes back to jobs and growth or something. Mm. You know, there's, there's very... Look, it, it's... Um, the problem is I think we don't know what to replace the the, the sort of doctrinal um, purity of the last 25 years with. It's, um, we know it's not working anymore that um, for the most part. We know it's not doing anything for wages and we're sick of, I think, feeling ripped off every step we take where we go out the door in the morning and, and there's are these great, you know, we're being sucked of, of money when we drive on the road and when we reach the airport or when we, um, we do virtually anything, it's all been monetized to some extent. I think people are a bit sick of that. Mm. Um, and... And we're living on debt. I think we all know that. But I don't think anyone's come up with a a suggestion for what might replace it. No. Um, I don't have any serious suggestions except sort of spooling back. Look, I think the other thing is, Amy, that, uh, that one of the... You know, 
I think in some ways the what is it, what this kind of notion destroys is provenance is is a sort of deep connection with um, with our past with any sort of critical understanding of our history or even an uncritical understanding of it or of what is of value you know I, it sort of it, it pushes me towards you know becoming a high Tory of some kind you know on certain days I am a high Tory you know I think my God, I'm a low-born high Tory, but, but I think, my God, every what people used to value very deeply as part of their um, heritage, um, what people could be assumed to understand about things, including questions of character um, and um, genuineness, uh, has sort of faded. Um, pretty thoroughly um, I may be speaking to someone who writes books and finds it increasingly hard to sell them because the market has probably been cut in half in the last 10 or 12 years um, people just don't do it anymore there are more reasons than neoliberalism for this but that's certainly one of them and I think actually when you look at these CEOs don't, but they do, I don't want to be impolite towards them but you're not looking at people who you would necessarily employ for their knowledge of uh, of family values, if you like to call it that, or of you know for their for their appreciation of art or music or of literature, you don't really think you're looking at anyone who's done anything outside an MBA. Mm. You don't feel like they're people of of great sort of um, cultural weight. Yes, what yes. What you do feel like is that they're actually you know uh, um, spokespeople for their brand, um, and that's all that matters to them. It's filthy money, filthy money, Amy. It is, Don. Um, Don, I wish we could keep talking, but I know you have to go, so I want to make sure you've got enough time to head to your next appointment. But thank you so much to for speaking with us today. It's a pleasure, Amy. Thank you. That was the wonderful Don Watson, who was uh, obviously former speechwriter to Paul Keating and an author, fantastic author in his own right, who's written many wonderful books that you can look up. And as we said, you should buy them. Um, you can see that he's written uh, many quarterly essays. And of course, The Bush um, is a standout book recently and uh, a single tree. So, and if you're interested in a lot of what Don's been speaking about in terms of uh, managerial speak, you can look at his book, Bendable Learnings, and also Weasel Words. Um, so, yeah, what a wonderful um, way to start the morning with some true philosophical contemplation. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. And you are tuned to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. I'm absolutely delighted now to have with me all the way from Tel Aviv via Skype, Daniel Chamovitz. He is the Director of the Manor Centre for Plant Biosciences at Tel Aviv University and he is also the Dean of the Faculty of Life Sciences at Tel Aviv University and he has written a book called What a Plant Knows, A Field Guide to the Senses. And uh, the first edition came out a few years ago but it's been updated and was released in Australia here by Scribe Publications at the end of last year. So I'm really pleased now to have Daniel with me. Hi there. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. 
It's really great to have you and uh, and also via Skype so we can have a bit more of an intimate, longer chat about this book because um, there is just so much in it in terms of the scholarly scientific research that you are citing. But before we get to other people's research and the key tenets of this book, I'd love to hear about your interest in plants and the senses particularly and where that interest, particularly your research, started. Well, actually, I wasn't interested in plant senses at all from a <laughs> to be completely honest in the beginning, I was actually in my early on in my research, I was looking at studying something that would be completely specific for plants, have no connection to human biology whatsoever. This is probably because my father's a physician, my sister's a physician, four uncle, three uncles are physicians, three cousins are physicians in my family. And I was trying to definitely not have anything to do with uh, human biology. That's fair enough. So, yeah, so in my research, I was actually studying. Um, how plants respond to light. And, you know, while we, we enjoy going to the beach and getting a suntan, we don't really change our shape in response to light. Um, and plants, if you can remember from, you know, an experiment you might have done in third grade or maybe your kids do, where, you know, if you put a seedling, a, plant, a, seed, a pea seed in a closet, it grows long and spindly in the dark. And when you put it in the light, then its leaves open and it turns green. So that light is sort of like the signal that completely changes a plant's shape. And so I was very interested in how a plant can, can do this. And that's a very plant-specific process. And so this was about 20, 25 years ago. And when I cloned a group of genes, that at the time when we cloned them, these were genes that were specific just to the plant kingdom, um, which made sense since I thought that a plant response to light would be specific just to plants. But then when they started clone, um, sequencing the human genome, they found out that these same eight genes that I had found in plants, which help them differentiate between light and dark, are also present in all humans, which was a real kick in the pants. Because, you know, why should humans have these plant genes? And I wasn't quite interested in understanding anything to do with human biology. But that actually made me think that maybe my whole paradigm was mistaken, that there's a lot more unity in biology than I had actually considered. And that if plants and animals share the same genes that help them differentiate between light and dark. Actually, we now know that some of these genes in, uh, in people are not only involved in things like um, cell division and cancer, but also in regulation of uh, the circadian clock of our daily day-night cycles. So if plants and animals contain very similar genes... Um, maybe the connection was a lot closer than we thought, which made me start thinking that maybe we need to start looking about how plants sense their, or considering that plants actually do sense their environment in the same way that we do. And when you start looking more closely in the literature, you see that plants are incredibly complex organisms. They really are attuned to the light environment. We can say they see that they actually smell their neighbors or they they're sensitive to chemicals that their neighbors give off. So we could say that they smell them. That's what smelling is. You know, we've all seen Venus fly traps. They know, and I'm using air quotes here, when the fly is on them. And actually all plants know when they're being touched. So it was interesting to try to figure out what are the similarities, what are the differences, and how a plant senses the world um, as opposed to how we sense the world. Indeed, and that does remind me of um, part of the chapter, I think it was in What a Plant Hears, where you were talking about how, and correct me if I pronounce this wrongly, but the Arabidopsis um, Arabidopsis, plant. sure. 
Yeah, and how they sequenced that plant's genome. And it was the first plant to have the full sequencing done. And could you expound a bit upon how similar that plant is to some of the other genomes that we now know of properly? Sure. So in the year 2000, Arabidopsis, it's just a small mustard plant. It's sort of like the, the fruit fly of the plant world. This was a multinational effort. Some of the work actually being done in Australia also sequenced the plant genome. Um, this was a couple of years before the human genome, right after the yeast genome. And all of these genomic studies were, were fascinating because we found out that a huge, you know, a huge percentage of the plant and human genomes are homologous, what we call overlapping. We could say they have exactly very similar genes. Now, in retrospect, this makes sense because two billion years ago, plants and animals evolved from the same single cell organism, which then split off into two lineages. So two billion years ago, we and trees have a common ancestor. And so the same genes that are needed for a, a cell to survive would be found both in animals and in plants. So when they were sequencing the Arabidopsis genome, they found out that Arabidopsis has the gene for breast cancer, BRCA, or Arabidopsis has a gene for cystic fibrosis, um, or Arabidopsis has the gene for deafness. At the same way as, like I just said a few minutes ago, that humans have the same genes that allow a plant to know if it's in the light or the dark. Now, that, of course, it doesn't mean that Arabidopsis gets breast cancer or that it can breathe and get cystic fibrosis. You know, the names of genes are a bit misnomers. We call it the breast cancer gene, not because it's there to cause breast cancer. BRCA causes breast cancer when there's a mutation in it and it doesn't work properly. The gene for deafness causes deafness when the gene for myosin has a mutation in it, and so the hairs in our ears don't grow properly. But under normal conditions, these genes have important roles in how cells develop and divide, and plant cells develop and divide, and so of course they have the same genes. Indeed. And so can I understand that when, for example, there's a mutation in the BRCA gene in a plant, what happens to that plant or does nothing happen? Well, what happens to the plant is that, um, so this doesn't happen in nature, of course, because that plant would die. But when we do it in the laboratory, a mutation in the BRCA gene will cause that the cell loses its ability to fix itself. The DNA can no longer uh, fix damage and actually the the plants die. They don't develop cancer, of course, because they don't have breasts. Yes, exactly. Uh, but the cells themselves no longer can survive, and then they die. Mm. From that point of view, plants can be a great model system for studying human disease, because at the basic cellular level, the same mechanisms are at work. Some of the research in my lab right now, you know, we're studying, you've probably heard you know, these, uh, what we call them in Hebrew, grandmother stories that like broccoli and cauliflower can protect you from cancer. Yes, yes. You know, part of, so, you know, like why would, why do plants make these chemicals that affect human biology? You know, like even aspirin coming from, uh, is also a plant product. In, in, and what we found is that these same chemicals, which when we give them as dietary supplements, which can kill cancer cells or in laboratories, in the plant, they also have a very important role in regulating how the cells divide and how the plant responds to damage, for example. So the same chemicals that affect the plant affect us. 
So in your view then, and perhaps even in your own laboratory or at the Tel Aviv University itself, are you seeing research and science moving into this, the study of plants to be able to illuminate these major issues and diseases that we're suffering from, such as cancer? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I guess, you know, probably some of the most uh, popular research going on, in, at least in the press, you know, is work going on with uh, medicinal cannabis. You know, so why would, you know, why, why do we get stoned? Sorry to put it that way. You know, how does, how does marijuana affect us? It's because in our own brains, we have cannabinoid receptors and plants make these chemicals and they also affect plant biology. You know, they don't, plants don't go around making all these chemicals just so that we can enjoy them. They're important for how the plant grows also. Yes, indeed. So we've perhaps had a very human-centric focus until now or even perhaps earlier in thinking that we're the center of the universe. Yeah, it's a little it's a little disconcerting to figure out that we're not. <laughs> it is. And it is uh, World Environment Day coming up, and that's a really important time to reflect on the fact that we aren't all that important in the scheme of things and perhaps won't even be here or will at least be outlived by plants such as the ones we're talking about. So it is important to talk about them. The, the, this whole research, aside from being fascinating, is important for our for our survival because everything we do is dependent on plants. You know, right now we're both breathing plant products. I'm wearing a plant product, cotton. You know, I drank several plant products this morning before the interview. We all ate plant products and I burned dead plants in my car driving to my office. You know, so we're completely, completely dependent on plants. Whereas, you know, they could get along quite well, if not even better without us. Yes, indeed. And uh, I want to head into now how you open this book in the first chapter, which is about what a plant sees, because I think that is one of the most um, illuminating and perhaps to me fascinating. No, No, exactly. (laughs) Pun intended here, maybe. But I really want to talk about how you describe what they're seeing, because you're not saying that they are exactly the same as humans, just as in each chapter, you're not trying to infer that plants have the same level of intelligence or the same sensory mechanisms as humans. That said, there are many similarities which you draw out between the human experience and the plant experience. But when it comes to seeing, you write... Plants see if you come near them. They know when you stand over them. They even know if you're wearing a blue or a red shirt. They know if you've painted your house or if you've moved their pots from one side of the living room to the other. Plants monitor their visible environment all the time. And you cite the research that initially looked into how on earth plants can actually see in some way these kinds of movements, colours, light, darkness. And I'd love to hear from you how that research evolved and what you found particularly intriguing about it. I love that you used the word how the research evolved because it actually began with Charles Darwin in in the late uh, 19th century. Uh, some of Darwin's last research for the last 10, 20 years of his, uh, of his life, he was studying how plants respond to the environment. And he wrote a book called The Power of Movement in Plants, um, which was published in 1880, which we actually still teach from, where he describes how a plant would bend to light that was so dim that, as he wrote in the book, that I couldn't even read the, the hands on the clock in my hand. 
So, you know, he was talking about how plants bend towards light. And we've all seen this on the plants that we put on our windowsill, how they'll bend towards where the sun is and away from the room. So this is research that actually started with Charles Darwin. So what we now know is, though, that plants, of course, they bend to the light, but they actually differentiate between colors. So, for example, if in the laboratory, you can actually do this at home with cellophane. If you put red light from a flashlight on one side of a plant, on blue light on the other side of the plant, it will bend to the blue light and not to the red light. So just like us, a plant can differentiate between colors. And um, this actually makes sense because why does a plant need to be so sensitive to light? Because it needs to get to, to the sun or to the open light in order to do photosynthesis, which is the power for, that enables it to make sugar, to grow. Plants don't eat. They make their own sugar and from there making their own proteins. So a plant has to know, and I'm using air quotes again, whether it's shaded or not. How does it know if it's shaded? It can actually measure the amount of red light versus the amount of what's called far red light. That's way off the spectrum that we can't see. If it's shaded by another leaf, there's very little red light hitting it. So it moves away to find more red light. If it's you know, completely shaded, it'll look for blue light to bend to get to another type of light. It needs to know how long the day is so it knows, for example, what season it is in the year. Now it's time to flower. Now it's not time to flower. You don't want your plants flowering in winter or else, you know, maybe the snow will cause the flowers to die. So the plant is exquisitely sensitive to the light environment. It can see, again, with air quotes, things that we're blind to. It, it senses UV light, which we don't respond to, and far red light and everything in between. If in your eyes you have four different types of proteins, what we call photoreceptors, which enable you to see the blue, red, green, and black and white light. Plants have upwards of 13 different photoreceptors that allow it to see a whole spectrum of light that we were blind to. It is really fascinating to think about that. And I was particularly interested in some of the work you were referencing about plants and how they perceive red light versus far red light and what kind of mechanisms plants are triggered by when it comes to either seeing the red light or a far red light and in what order or at what point. And I'd love to hear more about that. Well, let's see if we could get this uh, over the radio without me. I'm using my hands here in the air and people can't see what I'm doing. (laughs) Um, So plants need to use red and far red light as a sort of, let's call it a molecular switch to know how long the day is. So, you know, there are certain plants that will only flower in the spring and other plants which flower in the fall. So if we talk about a plant that flowers in the spring, the way it knows that it's the spring is it knows that the days are getting longer and the nights are getting shorter. And what happens if you can picture the sunrise, you know, the sunrise starts as a dark purple and then gets brighter and brighter. So as it gets brighter towards the red, this protein called phytochrome is turned on. And it says, yes, the day has started. Okay, now you have the whole length of the day. Now you can picture sunset. You're going from white to yellow to red to purple to very far red, which we can't see. And that far red light takes the same protein and turns it off. It's like a switch that's being turned on and off by red and far red light. Red light turns it on. Far red light turns it off. And that's the way it knows how long the night is and how long the day is. It's amazing to think about that. And what's also really amazing is one of those discoveries which you talk about in terms of where exactly this 
perception or at least where the seeing mechanism is within the plant itself. Yeah, so the, the, the sensory mechanisms in plants are distributed rather than organ-based sort of like with us. So if we're talking about what a plant sees, what it sees with red and far red light is in its leaves. And actually there, so the red light, let's say the leaf will get the red light at the right time of the year, and that will then send a signal all the way up to the bud and say, okay, start making a flower. You know, the same bud, which had only been making leaves, now completely changes its identity and now starts making a flower. And that actually is a signal transferring through the plant from the leaf all the way up to the top. But if you're looking at what makes a plant bend, there what's sensing it is the very, very tip And then it sends a signal down the stem telling it to bend. So what we're seeing here is actually sort of similar to what goes on with us. You know, if I would throw a ball to you right now and hopefully that you would catch it, you would sense it with your eyes and respond with your hand. Here what's going on with the plant, it's like sensing in the leaf and responding in the bud or sensing at the tip and responding in the stem. Mm. Yes, indeed. And just so people can visualise it because they may um, be struggling in this medium we call radio. It's great though because this book does have many illustrations so I'm sure people can look through that um, at a later time. But in terms of if we're visualising the seedling tip or the plant tip, could you describe really where that is in relation to the branches? The, The easiest to do would be to take like a young seedling or even, so if you have a young seedling that's just coming out of your pot, the tip of that seedling is what would be sensing the blue light. But when you look how the plant bends, and this is an experiment we can all do at home, it's not the tip that bends. You go down a few centimeters, and that's the part that's bending towards the light. So if like, if you would put your hand straight up and down, the tip of your middle finger is sensing, but it's your wrist which is bending. That's an excellent way to describe it. Thank you. And I want to head now into some of the other senses and to um, explore more about this. Uh, There's so much research that has been done that's really opened my eyes through reading this. You talk about smelling and you also talk about tasting, hearing. I want to talk a bit about smelling and tasting. Both of those things are quite interrelated in humans. But in terms of plants, you write that plants emit odours that animals and human beings are attracted to. And of course, we could all relate to that smelling beautiful flowers. Roses have a beautiful scent, of course. But plants can smell themselves and they can smell other plants around them within a certain radius. Can you talk a bit about what the reason is behind that or why it is so useful for a plant to be able to smell? Plants use smell as a form of communication. This started with research um, around 1980, um, mainly in a couple laboratories. One person I want to mention was a graduate student at the time was a scientist named Ian Baldwin. And what he noticed with this was at Cornell University was that when a leaf of a tree, let's say a, a willow tree, is attacked by beetles or any other insect. The neighboring leaves of a neighboring tree then start making chemicals which make those leaves unpalatable to insects, so the insects can't eat them. And his hypothesis was is that the damaged leaf is giving off a chemical into the air, which then the neighboring leaves take up and then use that as a signal to start protecting themselves. And he actually proved that experimentally. That's what's going on. 
Now, this is a great, you know, this leads to incredible anthropomorphism that one tree is telling another tree, oh, watch out, save yourself, very altruistic behavior. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have plant psychologists, so we can't really ask the tree what it's intending to do. Yes, if, but, um, they're, if they're doing it out of their goodwill or if it's just a, yeah. a self-protection mechanism. Well, you know, there's a lot of uh, models in evolution which show that altruism is a, is a pretty good strategy for helping in general. But it could also be that one branch of one tree is trying to signal to other leaves, other branches on the same tree. And then it's basically the tree helping itself. And the neighbors are just sort of eavesdropping, listening in. But so this olfactory, these volatile chemicals through the air, is a great way of communication because it's pretty rapid um, from one to the other. And actually, you know, we also communicate through smell. Literature is filled with ideas such as the smell of fear was in the air. You know, we, you know, the idea of pheromones, we give off these smells to communicate physiological states. Or, you know, like when you're having a barbecue outside, whether you're a vegan and it's tofu or there's a lot of meat on there, and you start salivating. It's not that you've chosen to start salivating. It's that you've gotten a signal through the air and that's letting you know, okay, food's around the corner. Exactly. And you do talk about um, some of those human examples like that, obviously, pheromones are very important in terms of uh, attractions between humans, but also you know, we give off smells woman to woman so that, as you say, menstrual cycles end up becoming timed in the same fashion. Everyone's um, happening at the same time, which I'm sure many women could relate to in a household. Yeah. And, and I don't think this is a choice. No, <laughs> definitely not. It's not that practical. Yeah. In terms of the the smell that let's use your example that you were providing with the beetles attacking the tree, what is the mechanism that the plant then goes into that does protect them against these uh, insects? So what happens is that uh, once the the, le- the tissue is damaged, the plant gives off into the air a volatile chemical which is dissolved in the air. It's actually a, a plant hormone which then gets sucked up by a neighboring leaf. And that hormone is then a signal for the plant that goes through a whole system to start making other chemicals. And you might know such names as tannins. Those are actually the red, the, some of the, the flavors in wines, which are repugnant to other uh, insects. So just like we have hormones in our body, which then tell other cells to start making other proteins, the same thing happens to plants. There are plant hormones, which are signals for the cell to start making a whole list of chemicals. Indeed, and you also highlight salicylic acid being sure. a defense hormone, and, and we do actually use that acid in products ourselves. Yeah, so yeah, this is this is the you know, so plants make a hormone. One of them is called salicylic acid, which is a defense hormone. That lets a plant know when it's been attacked by bacteria and viruses. Actually, plants can differentiate between being attacked by an insect, they'll make a chemical called jasmonic acid, or if they've been attacked by bacteria, where they'll make a hormone called salicylic acid. And so when a plant is sick, so to say, it makes salicylic acid. Now, interestingly, if humans take salicylic acid, we know that as aspirin, and it helps us combat illness also. So these same plant hormones also affect human biology. 
It is really very amazing to think. And it's true that we're all so interconnected and really dependent on each other in a way. I want to head into one of the facts that I bolded because I was just really, it struck me as quite amazing and makes total sense now that I am aware of it. When you moved into your chapter around what a plant tastes, you write that plants even have their own form of sweating called transpiring. A plant loses more water on a hot day than a cold one because evaporating water from its leaves cools it off. And you use this great example, which really is fascinating. You say, did you ever wonder why natural grass never gets hot, even on a sunny day, while artificial grass can burn your feet? Yeah, we we, we take that for granted that grass is always cool. We do. And and the reason that the grass is always cool is because plants are amazing organisms, just like us. They have to maintain a constant body temperature in order to survive. You know, if a a blade of grass heated up to 40 degrees in the summer, it would die. But it doesn't. And the way it maintains its temperature is by, for lack of a better term, sweating, transpiring. Water evaporates out of the leaf surface. And evaporation is a type of uh, air conditioning. It cools it off. Dew in some plants, sometimes dew is condensation water from the atmosphere onto the grass, but sometimes dew is water that came out of the plant but did not yet evaporate because it was uh, not hot enough yet. So sometimes we do see water coming out of the plants. And to put this all in a bit of perspective, we have many oak trees here in Australia. They're clearly not a native tree to Australia, but you say that an oak tree transpires... Yeah, we took your eucalyptus and brought it to Israel. It's definitely not native here either. (laughs) How many are there over there? Oh, huge amounts. We brought them to dry up swamps. Wow, that's awesome. I do love eucalyptus trees here and and we talk about them quite a lot because they're vital for our own ecosystems and to, you know, maintain our waterways. But you do see the odd oak tree, particularly in the botanic gardens and those areas where um, we have a great deal of English or British influence. And you write that an oak tree transpires more than 100 gallons of water on a hot hot day, but obviously we can't see such is the scale um, of the water that it is losing. What does it then do to replace it? So then it it sucks up water, it absorbs water from its roots. And so its roots are searching for water all the time, growing deeper or wider, looking for sources of water. And what a plant will do, a tree will do, if it doesn't have water, now there's a problem. You know, how am I going to survive? And so the first thing it actually does is it stops, it'll, it'll wilt, the leaves will sort of bend around each other. You know, you've seen leaves when they wilt, they bend around. The reason they can bend around each other is that then when the leaf will lose less water, because you have this area in the tube where the leaf has bent around, mm. where you have a high level of humidity, so you'll have less water being evaporated. The tree does this actively. It's not a passive response. It's trying to save water. Yes, it's a protective mechanism and it's also a very interesting mechanism under the ground. You say that plants in the beginning of a drought often increase root growth towards deep soil layers, searching for other new water sources and also that they stop the growth of shallow roots where the soil is driest. Just think of the complexity going on here. This oak tree now knows it senses that there's less water available. Um, Maybe the temperature is going up on the leaves. There's less water pressure. 
And so now signals are going to have to signal from the leaf to the root. And now it'll start saying, start growing your, your roots deeper. But, you know, there's often not water on the top. That's where, you know, the, the soil is getting dry. So I'm not going to grow roots towards the side. I'm just going to go deep looking for groundwater. So there's going to be communication all the time within the root system and then up to the leaves and the trunk in order to yield an organism, a tree that's completely adapted to its environment. There's signals being transported all the time back and forth, communication saying, I have enough water, I don't have enough water, get me more, get me less. Now you can open your leaf, you can keep going and do photosynthesis. It's really quite amazing. It is. And you cite research from Novoplansky in terms of the fact that there is a relay signaling going on often between plants as well. So this is, again, we get back to the idea of plants communicate with each other, which is a little difficult for us to accept or to not to anthropomorphize too much. He did this great experiment. You know, if you could just picture taking like a tomato plant and taking its roots and splitting them between two pots and then take another plant and split it again between two plots so that in one pot you have roots of two plants. You're sort of like making a daisy chain of plants. And what he found out is that if you would stop watering the first pot, the second, third, or fourth, or fifth pot, the plants in it would respond as if drought was starting. They were preparing themselves for an encroaching drought, which shows that the roots are exchanging information about how much water there are in other parts of the same root system. And this is a way for a plant to prepare itself, so to speak, um, so it won't be caught off guard by a huge drought. Yes, and in terms of the plant species, do they differentiate between each other in that action? There are some plant responses which are general, and there are some plant responses which are specific. For example, like when fruits ripen, a plant can't tell whether it's an orange an orange fruit is ripening or an avocado or a banana, which is why you can take an avocado and a banana, put them next to each other, and you can help the avocado ripen faster because the, the ripening hormone is uh, universal in uh, plant biology. But there are certain plants which can differentiate, and we don't know how yet, between themselves and other plants. So let's say roots are growing in the soil and roots of the same plant or two brothers meet each other, they'll meet and then grow away from each other so as not to bother themselves. But if it meets a plant of another species, it'll go and attack those roots and try to outgrow them. We don't know yet how they differentiate between self and non-self or differentiate between species. But of course, it's going to have to be some type of chemical communication. I remember, um, I can't remember exactly which species it was, but you did also write about a plant that it separates from itself and then it can't identify that in fact it was the exact same plant. It starts to think that itself is a different plant when it becomes physically separated. Yeah, yeah, this is a sad story to a certain extent. You know, it's like, when do you forget your family? It's a plant that take it and separate it into two root, different root systems. In the beginning, it knows that it was once the same plant. But then after a certain amount of time, it forgets and then starts attacking itself. You know, so you can really make a great novel about that. I'd love to head into the area of feeling and then um, we'll move into something a slightly more controversial. But in terms of how 
plants feel. You do make some really important distinctions between how humans feel and how plants feel and the difference between, I guess, a sensation or a feeling of touch versus a feeling of pain as well. But plants do know or can feel when a human has touched them and they respond in a range of ways. And it's quite surprising that it really can affect their growth and their future when a person or another element has touched a plant. Could you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, it's surprising at first. So if you could just picture a tree that's like on the top of a mountain, you know, often if you're like if you're hiking and you've gone to the top of a hill, on top of a mountain, you'll see a tree that will have a very thick trunk, very few branches, um, very few leaves because it's really exposed to the wind that's been shaking. it. And, you know, you think uh, intuitively that the wind has really you know ruined this tree. And if you go down in a valley and see the exact same species, it could be very tall and majestic with many branches, lots of leaves, a very beautiful tree. But. It's not that the wind destroyed that tree. It's that the tree knew that it was, there was a lot of wind and needed to survive. Let me take it from a different point of view. The big difference, or maybe the largest difference between plants and animals, is that plants are literally rooted in one place. They can't move. They can't escape. You know, when animals, humans, are in a situation that they're not happy about, what do we do? We run away, we escape. You know, if it's you know too cold, we can in Australia you could go up north. If it's too hot, you could go south. If there's not enough water around, you could go to a place where there's water. We you know we migrate in search of mates, in search of food, in search of temperature. That's a pretty easy strategy. It doesn't take much biology. But a tree, a plant, can't move. It has to survive maybe minus twenty in the winter, plus forty in the summer, all in the same place. And the way it can survive is by sensing the environment and then adapting its biology, changing its growth. So if we go back to being felt, to feeling, a tree knows or feels that its branches are being shook by the wind. And so it changes its shape. It says, I'm not going to make many branches, but I'm going to make a very thick trunk. I'm going to make fewer leaves. I'll make much larger roots. And this will enable me to maintain my position and live rather than being blown away and die. So plants have to know if they're being touched. They don't know that a gardener is touching, but they know that something is moving them. Mm. And you also cite research from Janet Brahm from Rice University and talk about the fact that just by touching an Aridopsis leaf can result in rapid changes in the genetic makeup of the plant itself. Yeah, this is you know, completely surprising. She wasn't even actually looking for this originally, but what she found out was that when you just touch a plant, a whole slew of genes get turned on in response to this touch. And these are, these are the genes that then allow the plant to say, okay, I'll make myself shorter. I'm not going to make as many branches. These are the signals going back and forth. But what was really cool in her research and has implications for biology in general, some of the genes that she discovered are the same genes that are involved in how our nerves and muscles communicate when they are touched. You know, if you could picture, you know, like a fly has landed on your arm and then a sig- electrical signal is going to your brain, and then another electrical signal goes to a muscle and you try to hit the fly and you usually miss it, right? But um, that electrical signal is propagated through uh, ions like calcium and sodium 
and another protein called calmodulin. And these same proteins and similar ions are involved or activated when a plant is moved either by our hand or by the wind. It's such a dynamic, constantly evolving biological situation, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, plants are incredibly, incredibly sensitive and incredibly complex in their responses. There's a lot of complexity that we don't understand still. And you, obviously, there are a lot of areas where research has evolved, as you've said, from the 19th century. Darwin and his son have been looking at a lot of these areas for some time. And we've seen, obviously, many scientists since find out more and more about these issues and areas of the senses and what plants can feel and smell. But I would love to hear a bit about something which is really part of the reason why this book um, was updated is that it's an evolving area of science in terms of what plants can hear and uh, and it's certainly an area that's contested in science uh, but you do highlight some of the things that we can be somewhat certain of based on the very early science that's uh, evolving at the moment in that area. So when I started giving popular lectures about, you know, how a plant responds to the environment. People were shocked that plants can differentiate between red and blue light. They were just amazed that plants communicate with smells. But on the other hand, everyone was convinced that plants have a musical taste, that they prefer classical music to rock music. And if you look through the literature up till the past few years, while there's thousands of articles showing how a plant responds to its environment, There are absolutely none, or maybe three or four, that show how a plant responds to music or other sounds. And in all of those three or four papers, for some reason, the plant grew better in the music that the scientists preferred. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which I think shows that we're better gardeners when we listen to music that we like. And so in the first version edition of the book six years ago, I concluded quite clearly that plants are deaf. But I left open a caveat that I'm ready for, my, for this to be changed. And this is important to differentiate between science and pseudoscience. And I think in the popular culture today, we sometimes get them confused, you know, especially in, in media and, and, and things we can find on the Internet with you know, completely bizarre claims of, of, of studies that have been done. You know, a scientist, and all of my colleagues will agree with me, is completely ready and happy or excited when our findings are proven to be false. We're always ready to the possibility that what we've shown is wrong, if data will support that. A pseudoscientist won't let good data get in the way of what they know to be true. And so over the past five years, there's been a trickling of studies coming out that show that plants may respond to sound. Now, this isn't plants responding to music. Now, from an evolutionary point of view, the idea that plants have musical taste makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, since we've been listening to recorded music for, uh, you know, 100 years. So uh, obviously a plant shouldn't care if it's classical music or rock and roll. But if a plant is to be listening to something, we need to figure out what would be ecologically relevant, what would be evolutionarily relevant for a plant to listen to. And there are a couple of studies that have just started to come out, one of which I'm involved in, that show, for example, that maybe plants hear 
the sound of insects. And that would make actually a lot of sense because if a plant is around the pollinator, it should maybe be doing all it can to attract that pollinator to come to it, to come to that flower so that it can make new seeds. Now, these are not trivial experiments. It's much easier to play a plant, you know, Led Zeppelin and see how it responds. But how do you play back the sound of, a, of wings of a moth versus wings of a, a bumblebee? Mm. You know, these are very comp- difficult experiments to do. But we do have um, data now that shows that at least one type of plant called the evening primrose can differentiate between the sound of a pollinator and the sound of a non-pollinator. They're different wavelengths. And when it hears a pollinator, it starts making more nectar or better nectar to attract it to come to pollinate the flower. There's another group of studies that have been done primarily coming out of a group in starting with a group in Italy of Stefano Mancuso, which was coming up with the idea that maybe roots can listen to or respond to the sound of running water. That would make actually a lot of sense. We talked earlier about that roots, you know, probe the ground to find water. How do they have any idea where that water is? Maybe there's some type of subsonic sound wave of running water in the soil, which will attract the roots to get to it. So in the second version of the book, I've I've admitted that I was probably wrong, and I will now accept the hypothesis that plants actually do respond to sound also. And also to make sure that um, we differentiate between sound and the vibrations that a sound can actually cause, because presumably they would also be different in terms of a plant's response. Here we're getting into a little bit of ambiguity, just like smell and taste are very similar um, senses. One is through the air and one is through dissolved chemicals in, in a liquid, but they're very similar. Hearing for us humans and touch are very similar senses also because um, hearing is basically vibrations going through the air, which our ears then are sensitive to, as opposed to being touched physically um, with an object. So here it is a form of touch, but it's a form of sensitivity to a sound wave propagating through the air and not something physically coming in contact with it. Mm, Indeed. And uh, if anyone's interested in that research, you were involved in it and uh, there are quite a few great uh, scientists involved, including Professor Yossi Yovel and Dr. Yuval Sapir. Yeah, so this this research is actually, it shows how collaborative research is. And the, the way it started is when I was writing the first version of the book, I was talking with a colleague of mine uh, Professor Lila Hadani, she's an, uh, a theoretical evolutionary biologist, and she didn't like that I said that plants don't hear. <laughs> she's the one who actually came up to me and said, you know what, you're saying that very categorically, and it maybe could be that we've done the wrong experiment, we as in scientists. And so then we spent the next year trying to figure out what the right experiment would be. And that's where we teamed up with the director of our botanical garden, who really understands um, large flowers and real plants, not like a plant like Arabidopsis. And Professor Yossi Ovel, who is the, one of the world's premier bat biologists and has this great recording and playback equipment for all types of different wavelengths. And so together, the four of us came up with this experimental uh, design to test the hypothesis that a flowering plant could differentiate between the sound of a pollinator and a non-pollinator. And it all came out of a of a coffee discussion in the hallway because my colleague didn't like my uh, categorical conclusion that plants don't hear. 
Mm. It just reminds me of a chat that I had a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about the life of an Australian naturalist called Edith Coleman who discovered pseudocopulation in orchids. And I was just thinking, I wonder whether orchids go through any type of mechanism or system to attract insects to them so that they can engage in, in that pseudocopulation. Well, first of all, this is known for, for, for decades, plants actively attract pollinators you know we that's why they give up they, they have these incredible color arrays and actually when a, some insects see things in the flowers that we don't see we now know for example that within the petals themselves there's a gradient of heat that we can't see but some insects do which sort of is like a target saying here is where you should be coming with arrows going towards the center of the flower there are other certain plants can actually call insects or insects have learned to respond to a plant so for example if a plant is some plants like corn is being attacked by aphids they give off a chemical into the air that wasps love and they then come and eat the aphids to then giving protection to the plant that's being attacked by the aphids there's so much there in terms of what a human eye can't see. To close out our discussion, I wanted to mention a couple of those other areas that uh, are also a bit contested but still very interesting. And uh, you talk about what a plant remembers. And <laughs> I'd love to just to hear more about how memory works because you talk about how there are, I guess, three levels that are proposed in terms of human memory and where a plant fits in with that. This is something that really gets people very upset at first because if there's something that defines us as humans, we think it's that we can remember things. But it ends up that plants and actually all organisms have memories. And plants actually have short-term memories, long-term memories, and very long-term memories that can actually go from generation to generation. You know, if I would give you my phone number right now, you know, you could keep it in your memory for a few seconds and then you would forget it. That's short-term memory. Uh, plants have a very similar short-term memory. And the best example is in a Venus flytrap. You know, and we've all seen how a Venus flytrap will close as a fly walks across its open lobes. And the way it knows that the fly is in the center is that the fly or the bug or whatever is there has to touch two hairs or two like these filaments that are in the middle of the leaves. But it has to touch them within 30 seconds. If it touches them within one minute, it won't close. So there's actually a short-term memory here saying, okay, the plant remembers one hair has been touched. Now it counts up to 30. If the second hair is touched, it'll close. If not, it won't. It's sort of forgotten that the first one was touched. So that's a short-term memory. Plants have longer-term memories. So, for example, of you know, you know, what's one of the things we really remember is weather. You know, oh, my God, the winter of 1995 was the worst ever. Everyone, we always talk about um, uh, weather. Plants remember weather all the time. There are certain plants, such as, for example, certain types of wheat, which will only flower if it's been exposed to uh, freezing temperatures. And in, in agriculture, we could take advantage of that, that we could put the seeds in a freezer. And then when we plant the wheat, when it gets to a certain size, it will start flowering regardless of what the temperature is outside because the plant remembers that it was once already in a cold period. So it knows that winter is already come and gone. What gets really bizarre is that plants can transfer information. 
let's call them memories, from one generation to the next generation, such that a plant, for example, that's been exposed to a drought will yield progeny that are more resistant to drought. So it's sort of that they already know, oh, my, my mother was there. I got to be ready for it myself. Um, there's some evidence that shows that they can even go down to grandchildren. So it can go one, two, three, maybe three generations. It's, 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 it's evolving research. It's called epigenetics. That's the mechanism. And what we now know that the same epigenetic mechanisms are also involved in transgenerational memories in many animals and maybe even in humans. You talk about Barbara Hone's study um, about how stressed plants make new combinations of DNA. And uh, it's really interesting to hear that because I, I was initially thinking of, are they going to be passing down something that is detrimental if they're in a situation such as a drought? But it sounds like it's actually a strength. Yeah, it's, this is a whole paradigm shift in biology in general about how we look at information, how we look at heredity. You know, you talk about, so this is non, non-Mendelian heredity. This is um, epigenetic memories. You know, how, how it affects evolution is a very big question. This sort of goes back to Lamarckian evolution from the 18th century on, you know, can you have an acquired uh, characteristic? But um, there, this is involving whole new mechanisms of biology, which are quite complex of changing of the structure of the DNA, changing different RNA molecules, and how this information is transferred from one generation to the other. And this goes on not only in plants, I just heard a great lecture a week ago about how in a small little worm, it can pass on a memory, a neurological memory from its brain. It can be taught how to do something, and then its progeny already know how to do it because of information that was transferred from its brain to its eggs, to the next generation. But when I use the word memory, I'm not, we have to rem- to take out the anthropomorphism. I don't think like a plant yearns to be a seedling again. Oh my God, it was so great when I was a seedling. <laughs> Back in the you know, good old days. That, you know, there's no emotion involved in these memories. These are information that's necessary for survival, but they don't need a psychologist. Exactly. It's for a certain purpose. As you said, they don't have an ego or a super ego. Right, exactly. I just wanted to pick up that element about intelligence because we talk about ourselves as being, you know, these highly intelligent species. As, but as you've said earlier on, we've really sprung from the same cell and there are many similarities in terms of our DNA. But in terms of talking about plants, are we sometimes um, limited, I guess, in our imagination or our understanding of what intelligence is? Well, can I tell a story about my wife? Yes. So when I was writing the first version of the book, I started dealing with this question of intelligence. And there are a lot of philosophers or some plant biologists who like to you know, talk about plant intelligence. And my wife's PhD was in psychology and about multiple intelligences. And she looked at me incredulously and said, are you crazy? We can't even decide on a definition of intelligence for people. You want to start defining it for plants? You know, intelligence is one of these words which everyone has an innate understanding of what they mean, but there's no real definition of it. You know, is IQ intelligence? Is being able to pick up on information intelligence? Is adaptation intelligence? Um, So I don't even want to start using that word. You know, I, I, on April Fool's this year, I made a, a plant intelligence test. <laughs> um, 
it's online. People can look at it in my blog on um, on thedailyplant.com, and you can actually take the, you can test your plants, and I can actually come up with a metric that has a Gaussian bell curve uh, distribution that showed that there are smart plants and stupid plants. But this is all based on definitions that I defined as intelligence. So it doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. So I don't think the question is whether plants are intelligent or not, because we don't even def- know, can't define that term. The question is, are plants complex? And they're incredibly complex. Are they communicating? Yes, they're communicating. Are they adaptive? Completely adaptive. Are they aware of their environment? Definitely. If that is your definition of intelligence, then I'll accept that plants are intelligent. But it doesn't really help me scientifically to use that term at all because there's no test I can use. You know, I'm not going to start giving them an IQ test. Exactly, exactly. But they do do some amazing things. And uh, one of the fascinating things I was very unaware of was the fact that plants, when they're tipped upside down, actually try and correct themselves and change their positioning. And I just couldn't even uh, believe that that happens and I'd love to see it. First of all, you can do it. Great. Take take your potted plant at home, put it on its side, and you can even put it in a dark uh, closet so that it's not the light that's involved. And you'll see that it'll bend up. The, The shoots always bend up and the roots always bend down. And that goes on all over the world like that in every plant species. But there's only one place that it doesn't happen. And that would be space. In outer space on the space station. And the space station, the roots and the shoots have no idea where to go. Daniel, it's been amazing speaking with you. I really have enjoyed this chat so much. And in terms of this book, it's just so fascinating and engaging and beautifully illustrated as well. And just to finish out this discussion, in terms of you and your passion for this, it's obvious that it's something you're so engaged with and excited about. And obviously you have some great colleagues over there at Tel Aviv University. But where do you want to take your research and and where do you think the most exciting things are going at the moment in terms of what you've been looking at in this book? Well, the, the challenge for plant biologists in general is how do plants integrate all of this information? You know, the we talked about plant awareness of the light environment, of the smells, of gravity, of being touched, of temperature, of the amount of light, all of these things. It's all integrated, as we talked about, to yield a plant exquisitely adapted to its own microenvironment. And it integrates all of these signals without a brain, without a neurosystem. How does it do that? We, you know, we're just starting to be able to answer that question now. That is, I think, the key question for plant biologists in general. And it behooves us. It's, it's, it's incredibly important for us to understand that so that we will be able to utilize this information in agriculture with the huge growth in world population and the huge changes in the environment that are man-made, if we don't understand how a plant responds to its environment so that we can utilize this information in agriculture, um, we're going to find ourselves in a big problem in 10, 20, 30 years. Exactly. It's so, so relevant to now with climate change being such an urgent problem. Daniel, thank you so much for spending your time with me. Thanks very much. That was my interview with Daniel Shamovitz and we were discussing his book, What a Plant Knows, A Field Guide to the Senses and it is out through Scribe Publications here in Australia and uh, Daniel 
is uh, an academic and he is also the Dean at the Faculty of Life Sciences at Tel Aviv University. So uh, he's certainly at the forefront of this science and so passionate about it. It's so great to hear his enthusiasm for plants and I hope you enjoyed that interview. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. I'm really pleased now to welcome Dr. Andrew McGregor, who is a lecturer in French studies at the University of Melbourne, and also Roberta Chiabara, who is film programmer at ACME. Welcome to you, Andrew. Hi. Thank you, Amy. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you, and Roberta. Hi, Amy. Hi there. Now, welcome and thank you for coming in because it's um, really great to have this chat and to, I'm hoping, delve a little bit into the life and work of Jean-Luc Godard. He is, um, in my view, an amazing filmmaker, someone who constantly inspires me. I'm often um, left without words as to how he created some of his works because you could use the word genius, and I hate to say that because it's a cliche, but I think he does deserve the title. But we are here to talk about two specific films. The first one is called Redoutable, and it's in subtitles or in brackets, Godard Mon Amour, so Godard My Love, um, which is really about part of his life. And it's not meant to be a non-fiction version. I mean, parts of it, obviously, there must be parts of it that are factual, but we can't necessarily say that it is a completely factual account of the period that we're looking at. But certainly it is based on a true story. It's based on a memoir from one of Jean-Luc Godard's wives. <laughs> Wife number two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, and she, you know, was a fascinating actress um, in her own right and certainly a really important figure um, in film herself. So um, we are talking about, and can you please pronounce the name so I get it right? <laughs> Anne Wierzemski. Anne Wierzemski. There you go. And she um, she wrote a memoir which apparently the film director of this, uh, this film read and approached her and said, I'd like to create uh, a film about your relationship with him through your eyes. I'm not quite sure if it really achieved that. Mm. But if you look at the film as it is, which I approached it with a very open mind, mm-hmm. um, which is that it may be a piece of entertainment. There may be parts of it that are true, but who knows? We won't really ever know. Only Jean-Luc and Anne will know what's true and what's not. Um, but that it is, I guess, a bit of an ode to Goddard, really. Um, it's certainly not hypercritical of him. But let's talk about Redoutable because I know mm-hmm. both of you have seen it. Um, Andrew, I know uh, you have... I saw you at the screening <laughs> last Thursday, but I didn't get to say hello. That's right. I was so excited that you were there to yep. see it again. Um, that was great. Enjoyed it. Yeah, so what did you think about it? Well, look, I, I think it's it's a great film. And when I say great film, I think it's a very enjoyable film. And I think it's a great introduction to Godard for those who are not so familiar with his work and with, with the myth of and the legend of the man himself. Um, I think it's perhaps not a great film in terms of filmmaking history, but I don't think that was the objective. 
it is marketed as a comedy and I think you can get away with all sorts of things once you start um, going down the comedy path. And I think that was really appropriate because there's such, you know, such a, a myth, such a cult that surrounds the Jean-Luc Godard personality Absolutely. that I think this film really does a great job of breaking that down and making it accessible. Um, you mentioned Anvia Zemsky's book and I actually did read both of the books that she read about, um, that she wrote at least about her relationship with Jean-Luc Godard. And first of all, she's an excellent writer and that mm. occupied most of the, the latter part of her career. Um, and what really comes through those books is a lot of love it's actually a phenomenal love story. And I think the film, to a certain extent, does justice to that. But I think in the books, Godard comes through as a much more positive character in terms of his devotion to Anne herself. Um, I think it, the film itself really does focus on his preoccupations with political movement and the drastic, you know, phenomenal revolution in his own filmmaking career to the point where he actually decided to effectively kill himself off, as it were, and become a part of a film movement that was very much part of the of the era, the kind of Marxist-Leninist, Maoist movement, and kind of disappear into a collective, which was very fashionable at the time. Um, the Beatles were going off to, to India and Godard was, you know, wrapped up in Maoism. But it was very much like a dogma that took over his life mm -hmm. and I think effectively put an end to his relationship as well. Um, but the film really, I think, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting one because it, it reaches, I think, a really great balance between a kind of ode to Godard, as you mentioned, because I think he comes off as an exceptional artist, really at the cutting edge, really at the avant-garde, and it's hard to think of any kind of artistic uh, creator um, still alive today or, you know, throughout the course of film history... Of, throughout the course of film history, who is more devoted to giving everything to the work that he produces. And um, that work has certainly evolved over the years. Um, and it's, it's great that we have the opportunity to see the film at Acme, um, along with um, his other great work, um, Contempt. Screening yeah. exclusively at Acme, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> well done, Roberta. Um, I saw an opportunity, I took it. <laughs> and there'll be much more of that. Roberta, uh, you know, you are a film programmer at, at Acme and you've brought two films about Jean-Luc. We'll talk about um, this one about his life first and then obviously we'll move into Le Mepris soon. What was your response to the film? Well... I too went with, I guess, a sense of apprehension, basically, because I just wasn't sure what it was going to be. So um, there was a huge sense of relief, really, because <laughs> I absolutely enjoyed it. Um, and as, as you've explained so eloquently, I think that the fact that it's based on the subjective point of view of, um, you know, the woman he shared his life with, with a number of very critical years, um, means that we, we see him through her eyes. In fact... Um, when we see uh, Louis Garrel as Godard right at the start of the film, which in itself is such a huge leap for people who know anything about Godard to yeah. accept Louis Garrel as, you know... <laughs> It, he's such an iconic image, Godard. We can see Godard. Mm. So when you see Garel, there's just that adjustment you need to make. You do. Uh, and then Stacey Martin's narration voiceover tells us that, you know, she's in love with this artist that she respects and how wonderful that all is. And then suddenly it kind of all makes sense. Mm. Um, so we accept Garel as Godard. We accept her as, as Anne. Um, and it, uh, it humanises him. Um, and I think... Um, 
when you talked about mm, Michelle Hazanovich's approach to Andrea Zemsky in in order to, uh, I guess, be you know clear the rights to be able to adapt her story for the film, um, she had had obviously a number of approaches and had basically she wasn't interested mm. um, because you can imagine the the trepidation she would have felt about what people would do with that very personal material. And basically she had effectively politely declined his approach as well and then right at the end of their conversation apparently uh, in an interview he's given, he said, you know, it's a real shame because I just... Um, uh, th- there's there's a real uh, lightness too about it. You know, it's I can see this material as being comic as well, um, not not in a... Uh, not in a way that denigrates the sentiment or the tenderness mm. or the pain, but just, you know, a, a certain lightness of, of tone. And, and that kind of really turned her around. Mm. And so then, then she started to listen more attentively. Um, and, yeah, so I, I think it humanises him. And when he does... Um, you know, when he becomes a difficult character, I mean, the man's imploding. He's, he's for, for, I don't know, seven or eight years, he has been um, the icon of the French New Wave movement. Uh, he's an auteur like no others, even though there's a very select club of auteurs mm. that he fraternises with to some extent. Uh, and now suddenly he's trying to kill the auteur and join this collective movement uh, and reimagine himself and the style of films he's going to make uh, and how to integrate politics and ideology and all of that into it. So, you know, that's a hard place for anyone to be, I think. Uh, <laughs> um, so, I, I, yeah, I, um, I actually, I think it's a, a wonderful solution to the problem of how do you even, you know, a, apart from making a documentary, but even approaching the idea of making a documentary about that period in Goddard's life is, mm. I think, you know, it's very almost delicate. insurmountable. That's right. It's a very delicate subject matter. And apparently, Anvia Zemsky was very happy with the result. Of course, Goddard famously said that it was a stupid, stupid idea to make the film. And one yes. wonders whether he's actually seen it. I doubt it somehow. Well, he said <laughs> making the film was a stupid idea, but we right. don't actually know no, what he thinks about right. the film. It was the idea of making it that's true but yes. when you think about it it's a rather extraordinary situation to have mm. your ex-wife writing a book about sure. you and then having a film adaptation so I think it's um you know it was a big a big ask from the outset and I think it was extremely well handled mm-hmm. and I do think Louis personally I think Louis Garrel does a fantastic job I I, I was agree. completely won over by his take on Godard mm-hmm. um he certainly had all the mannerisms down just even the physical movement um the, the lisp was there yeah. the slight Swiss accent all of that yes. was there um, if anything, I think Stacey, well, Stacey Martin, I think, did an excellent job as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But one thing that was really apparent in the book that perhaps didn't come through in the film was the fact that Anvia Zemsky, she's a beautiful woman, perhaps an, perhaps an unconventionally beautiful woman, mm. and was very insecure about that, about her physical appearance. So if anything, yeah. I think mm-hmm. we're back in the situation where we have an actress who's far too beautiful, <laughs> conventionally beautiful yeah. for the role. And we kind of lost that aspect to it. She was always kind okay. of questioning her validity yeah. uh, to a certain extent, including her, her physical presence. Um, but on the whole, I think it was, yeah, the fact that it obviously was based on a personal account from Anne's side. Mm. Um, so I think once again, we're a step away from a factual account. It's by no means a documentary. I just think it's a, it's a lot of fun and a great way of evoking the kind of style of the era as well. And yes. it's, it's great to yeah. know that we're actually this month celebrating the 50th anniversary of the May 1968 student mm. uprising. The so revolution very, very that wasn't. Absolutely. <laughs> That's exactly right. And it's interesting how the film picks up on that mm. and how Godard is still wrapped up in that ideology right. when everyone else has kind of moved on already. He has been incredibly <laughs> consistent since May 68. Yeah, you right. know, he's still trying to figure that out. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and he never went back to that 
pop art star. He never went back to the star that made him famous. That's right. no. So he mm. has been consistent. In fact, just last month, of course, he was um, at Cannes. Well, he wasn't at Cannes. I, I uh, understand he appeared in, in an interview. He was interview. on FaceTime. Skype or something? Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were using an, a phone, an iPhone, uh, yes. and video right. interviews. <laughs> yeah. To create that sense of detachment, of course, that is so <laughs> important in his style. Uh, but he received... Um, a special award, uh, and I've, I've forgotten the wording, but it's something to the effect of for continuing to advance the form of cinema or, you mm. know, cinematic exploration. Uh, yeah. And at 87, and, <laughs> and given the filmography and, and recent, you know, just his output in the last decade, I mean, he's super prolific. Absolutely, mm. and I think that, that kind of says it all, and it's, um, you're absolutely right to mention that, Roberta, because um, I think just listening to Kate Blanchett talking, because she was president of the jury this year mm. at Cannes, um, I think they really didn't know what to do with the film and how to react to it. And from the critical responses to the film, this yeah. is his latest, um, the image book, um, it's really, it's kind of classic Godard because one, you can't just adopt a, a kind of conventional approach to reading this film. And he's always challenging our position as spectator as well. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of work that he demands from his spectator too. Yeah. And not everyone is prepared to put in that work, I guess. And you can have a, an endless debate about whether, you know, that is a worthy, a worthy enterprise. But like we said earlier, he certainly is true to form and you're absolutely right, he never went back to making those conventional films as he saw it at the time. But I guess what what we can say too that comes through in the film is the fact that once those films are out there, those classic films from the yes. French New Wave, they kind of belong to us too. They do. They're kind of public exactly. domain. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, regardless of what Godard has to say about them, they are, you know, absolutely fundamental to the history of cinema. Uh, he may have disavowed them for a mm. moment in 68, but I'm sure he's come <laughs> around and gone, actually, they were pretty wonderful, weren't they? <laughs> pretty damn amazing. <laughs> Seriously. Um, it's funny that you say that the actress playing and doesn't really look like her because I I thought she really reminded me of Chantal Goya who was in Masculine Femina. Uh-huh. Mm. And I and, thought... And a Karina a yes, little bit. Yeah. Too. I mean, that's, that was a criticism so. that was levelled at the casting. Yeah. It's like, why, mm. why has he chosen someone who looks like Anna Karina? <laughs> exactly. But, but it, it's actually, the truth is more prosaic. Um, Stacey Martin, the, the actress we're talking about, was in a film with, um, I'm not sure if it's Berenice Bejo or Bejo, mm. but mm. the director's wife. Mm. Um, she's an actress in her own right, but they are married. <laughs> uh, she was in... The the artist um, a few years ago, um, for which they, they won the Academy Award. That's right. Yeah, mm. that's right. Um, so she has a role in, in uh, Redoubtable. Um, Redoubtable just doesn't have the same. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> doesn't. Doesn't, does it? And <laughs> I, I understand God Amor Amor is an alternate release title um, in the States. It's a US title. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And mm. and I actually, I, I prefer it just because, well, apart from the fact that Redoubtable is it kind of like really a work in nonsense word it in a way, mm. yeah. God Amor Amor to me immediately suggests a feminine perspective mm. or somebody else's perspective, yeah, on, perspective on him absolutely. and it is her mm. perspective so I think mm. that you know it's, it works quite it's quite lyrical um, but to get back to Stacey Martin um, uh, she and Berenice um, were in a film together uh, Childhood of a Leader uh, which was seen here not so long ago uh, Robert Pattinson was in it as well uh, I've forgotten the is it Brady Corbett the director a new director it was a, it was an auspicious debut and and they co-starred in it and that's where the director uh, met her mm. and just thought she had the look of someone who was 
born in that, you know, was, came of age in that decade. Um, she had that sort of 60s look about her um, and uh, I think she's been brought up in both England and France, so she just kind of yeah, has that sort of, yeah. you know, dare I say it, Jane Birkin vibe. Very, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. There are all sorts of connections to be drawn. Yeah. yeah. So, and she was certainly young enough. That was another thing that, that yes. came through in the books too, was the fact that she was incredibly young. I think there were at least 17 years between them. There were. And yeah. it was, you know, even for the late 60s, it was kind of fairly scandalous as well. So I think, you know, mm. all the ingredients were there. But perhaps not for the late 60s, I don't know. Uh, film directors <laughs> get away with a lot. <laughs> That's true, at the time, for yes. sure. Yes, and Jean-Luc was a celebrity at that time because we're looking at his later career. I mean, he's still working now, but in terms of that really um, prominent French New Wave period where mm-hmm. he's still engaging, um, you know, prolifically in that new way of doing cinema in France. This is a bit later on. It's past his uh, film A Bout de Souffle. Mm. Um, and, uh, and he was part of a group. He was probably the most prominent, really. But uh, we also had Francois Truffaut, Jacques Rivette, uh, Claude Chabrol, yes. a great mm. director, um, and uh, also Maurice Scherer and Eric Romer. And they mm. were part of a film criticism group that uh, had a, a publication, Cahier du Cinema, yes. which is such an important vehicle for mm. them to get their ideas out there. But these films are really the example, the the most important, I guess, part of the whole theory and the whole intent behind these films. They're really um, so good at exemplifying the spirit of We're the, talking the new about wave. The, the films from like Breathless to yeah. Contempt in 63. Mm. And, exactly. Uh, woman is a Woman in 61. Bound Apart is 64, I think. Uh, yep. Bound of Outsiders. And there's another one in there. He had the most prolific five-year mm. period. He was just knocking mm. down one after the other. Made in USA. Made in USA. Mm. Piero um, Le Fou is a fantastic Her Life film. to Live, another, yeah. uh, in fact, um, Alphaville. <laughs> yes, Love Alphaville. <laughs> he was occasionally making two films at once as well, and that's how prolific he was. Wow. It's quite extraordinary. And you, you're quite right to evoke that period, and that too, of course, was an absolute revolution for you know, yeah, world cinema history. But it, it's fair to say too that that was also a very youthful movement because mm-hmm. they're all, you know, it's actually their first films that we're talking about. So, and once again, absolutely true to their word in that they criticised, particularly Truffaut actually criticised the cinema that was at the time and that was the kind of grand cinema based heavily on literary adaptations. And this Mm. was really kind of like the the birth, I guess, of the auteur movement. So the idea that the film director really had some kind of personal vision to represent in this film. Mm. And from then, um, vehicles like the Cayudi Cinema picked up on this notion and to this day in France the director of the film is as much a star as anyone actually appearing, you know, in front of the camera. Mm. And uh, that's a great legacy, I think, of uh, French cinema in general. Yeah. And this film, Redoutable, it does pick up on and pay homage to some of the um, film techniques that Jean-Luc Godard was using. I mean, sure. there's so yep. many notes I was taking, like, <laughs> you know, text interspersed randomly. Yes. Yep. You the know, slow pans left and right. right. Tracking shots yes. that go forever, you know. he mm. And that the random sounds happening, mm-hmm. um, talking Dissonance. to the screen yep. um, and then going back to your conversation with the other actor. Mm-hmm. There's just... And the, the um, tinting across the screen of mm. different colours. Yep. 
all these things to just say this is not a stage boundary creation of anything in a different space. Right. There's so much vitality and energy and originality and to And a very all of theatrical that. space too because, in fact, it was the apartment they lived in that was the set for La Chinoise, um, which was his kind of big failed Maoist project as we see at the start of... Um, Godamon Amour, as we'll call it from now on. Yeah. <laughs> but I was actually in their apartment. So, and also you have those primary colours, often referencing yes. the French flag as well. So there was a lot going on on many, many different levels, as Homer Simpson would say. Mm. Um, and it, it works. I think the film really does work in that, in that sense because it's, it's not, they're not just kind of cheap references. No, I not think at it's all. actually they're really quite brilliantly integrated mm. into the whole narrative. It all holds together. It's kind of a recipe for disaster, but it's actually held together, I think, really quite yeah, brilliantly. And just that, that lightness of tone that mm. um, Hasana Vicious is able to set and maintain, uh, I think, is incredibly consistent throughout. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a lovely film. It's not a film by Goddard. No. <laughs> <laughs> so we shouldn't kind of um, superimpose, you know, a whole different set of expectations. Mm on it um, or Godardian set of expectations on it. Exactly. I don't think anyone could possibly try and replicate Jean-Luc Godard. It would be <laughs> Well, they could, horrible. but it would show. Yeah. <laughs> and we're ready to talk about Jean-Luc, director of this film. And as I said, it's showing at Acme. Um, it's really a rare experience to see it on the big screen. And it's so well suited because of the wide shots that are just so epic of um, the coastline of Capri. Mm. Um, you know, some of those beautiful modernist buildings in this film are just so breathtaking. Um, it, it really is a feast for the eyes, let alone, you know, getting into the content of what this film is about. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's talk about, I guess, the actors and how this film has come about. It is um, it is based on a novel, uh, it, well, two novels essentially, I guess. Um, it, it's a film within a film, so um, we are looking at... Homer's The Odyssey, and uh, and we have Fritz Lang pra- playing himself, essentially. <laughs> it's amazing. Mm. Like, what a treat. <laughs> um, and, and great um, to see there was an interview between Fritz Lang and Jean-Luc Godard, yes. like a chat that's an hour-long chat on the extras for the DVD, which I also availed myself of, and it's such a beautiful thing to see, like, this, you know, older, um, important figure in cinema of Fritz Lang and a much younger Jean-Luc Godard, and they're kind of, I guess they're fanning each other. They're like, oh, my God, I just love you so much. It's the alternate Truffaut and Hitchcock, isn't it? <laughs> It is a bit of a love fest. Um, And this film, it's spoken in a range of languages. It's Italian, French, German, English. And we have a translator, Mm. Francesca, who regularly either pre-translates someone before they even speak or (laughs) she kind of manipulates or alters the meaning of some of what the characters are saying and that's a fascinating thing in itself to see you know what's going on in the subtitles um and and there's been some speculation that um there was a very specific reason to have that translator there and to have the subtitles be such a prominent element so that there was no dubbing because Jean-Luc Godard could not stand (laughs) dubbing which was a common practice at the time very common and I respect him for that. I loathe dubbing. <laughs> <laughs> it is really disturbing, isn't it? Well, you don't get to hear the actual actors. No. Right. So it, it's a different performance. Mm. Totally. And we have some great actors in this film. Oh, yes. I mean, the most obvious one is Brigitte Bardot, who 
Wow. Um, <laughs> what, what I don't know. Michelle Pickley for my money yeah. is, is, is the draw card. Yeah. Uh, but, I, you know, obviously I can appreciate Bardo's performance. Yeah. Well, it, she's so, um, I mean, there's so much going on under the surface of yeah. her character and you're constantly going, what's happening? Like bubbling underneath there. And, you know, mm. she has so much contempt <laughs> at times for her husband well, yes. So first, it's sort of estrangement, and then it just it deepens, yeah, doesn't it? Uh, it does. And and he's he's at a loss to, to understand, or even when he does understand what what the ostensibly there's something that happens um, uh, that that sets her off. Um, mm. And for the longest time, you're thinking, if only he could understand what it is. But then <laughs> That's key, I think. he makes it mm. quite clear that at the end that he kind of understands what it is. Um, but still, this whole thing is a mystery, her, her response. And, and it's just there's this ineffable quality about it was there when the film starts, they're in love, uh, and then it, it kind of dissipates. And it's a mystery. It is. Uh, and it's elusive. Uh, and there's a lot going on under the surface with Michelle Piccoli's mm. character, of course, too. But mm. he's, he's very content physically. Um, I guess we're not saying a lot about the plot, are we? But um Well, certainly the theme, I think, is, is absolutely characteristic, characteristic of French cinema because the kind of breakdown of relationships and the, the difficulty of communication, and I think that's mm. really where Godard is really onto something with this particular film. Yeah. It's also come back into to vogue in, in French studies as well because of its multilingual quality, as you mentioned, yeah. Amy. Um, very avant-garde for the time. Mm. And also, just with that subtitling, there's also the sense that we're very dependent on the subtitles, but we're also not 100% convinced that we're getting everything here. And I think that's a big part yeah. of what um, Godard was going for as well. He's obviously fascinated by language, the kind of coding involved in the, the, the limitations, the structure of language and how to go beyond that. And I think that kind of language of cinema is what he's exploring much more deeply in his later works. But this is a real gift, more I think. Absolutely, right. With actually absolutely. the text actually being there yes, on the screen. Yeah, that's a, that's a real, mm. you know, uh, it's absolutely characteristic of his of his work. Um, and I think that it's interesting too, isn't it, to talk about this film having just spoken about um, the revolution that took place and is represented in in um, Le Redoutable, because I mean, in terms of um, icons, you mm -hmm. can't go much further than Brigitte Bardot. So it's not just he's turning back, <laughs> turning his back on contemporary society. He's gone from one extreme to the other, quite dramatically. Yeah, so. I, I do say he probably struggled with aspects of the production. Uh, this was a uh, he was already quite famous when he well he was he was famous. He was the guy mm. who'd made um, a Buddha Suft. Uh, mm. So um, the the template was set, uh, but it was it. It was a bit of a departure in that it was a bigger budget. Mm. Um, it wasn't Anna Karina, it was Brigitte Bardot. Mm. Uh, and was it his only widescreen production? I think it might have been. I think it might. It was, yeah, Cinemascope. Cinemascope. Yes, Cinemascope. Mm. yes. Mm. It yep. was. Uh, so uh, sometimes people epic. report it as his first colour film. Mm. It's not his first colour film. It's his first colour cinemascope mm. yeah. uh, because uh, A Woman is a Woman in 61 was colour, but it was Eastman colour, so not quite the same mm. scale. And it's very you know, vivid, isn't it? It's, Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's really seductive visually. Mm. I mean, it, it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> it's so true. And we are, it is based on... Um, a novel which is called Il Disprezzo, A Ghost at Noon is the English translation which obviously is that, still lacking. Yes, something's going on there. Il Disprezzo <laughs> is, is, is quite, it's just contempt. Yeah. Contempt. Yeah, mm. yeah so 
tragically, that's where being a multilingual speaker is certainly of benefit. I'm a little bit jealous of people who do know multiple languages fluently because, as, as we all know, it just adds so much more richness to the understanding. But I want to um, focus on some of the fascinating parts of this that was going on behind the scenes because mm-hmm. I know that he, Jean-Luc, had two American producers oh. um, for this film. Did he? Oh, he did. Carlo Ponti. Or at least one, Joe Levine. He still Mm. had uh, Georges de Beauregard, Mm. who was... Was there since day one. (laughs) Yeah, he was. So every other film he'd made up to that point, Georges de Beauregard was a producer. This one in particular, though, had a lot of money behind it and had additional producers. And so one of them, Joe, uh, actually insisted that there be more nakedness of Bardot, which is why perhaps we see... Her naked body, um, various times, <laughs> very slowly. Panning Let's just say it's a good, across. yes, it's a good it's, use it's, of cinema scope. It's, I think yeah, no, he really, he 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 bristled at that, um, and it's interesting. Um, I came very late to Tuva Bien, a film he made in four years after the revolution, um, May May seventy two, and in that um, he's, he casts Jane Fonda, who at this point had become Hanoi Jane, and um, Yves Montand, who was a very famous actor, but he was also very famous for being involved in the communist. Um, movement and he of course was the star of Wages of Fear so there's sort of a lot going on there Mm. Uh, but he basically at the start of that film when we finally see them as a couple uh, he has them do kind of a version of the dialogue where it's like you know what do you love about me do you love my my mouth my ears you know my hair Mm. the the whole thing and watching it I just remember thinking hang on I've seen this before but oh that's right they were in bed Uh, Brigitte Bardot was naked whereas in 72 Jane Fonda and Yves Montan as two adults in a relationship are fully clothed, they're just speaking to each other, you know, all of that mm. kind of sensuality and eroticism is kind of removed and and they're just communicating at, at that verbal level and mm. I think I think probably it stayed with him, it was a real bugbear of his mm. and it took until 72 for him to be able to relive and redirect that scene yeah. in, a, in a way that he was comfortable with <laughs> He did disrupt it a little bit by using um, red and blue filters across her body at mm. times which was yes. somewhat jarring mm. and I guess did kind of make us go oh hang on we're not just here to stare at her buttocks and <laughs> which well, becomes a shape yeah right. it's more yeah. of a form exactly yeah. rather and an aesthetic rather than you know being um object- BB's buttocks Sub- exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly subjectifying her objectifying her mm-hmm. um subjectively but I want to um, use a quote from Godard to just kind of close out this discussion or a couple of quotes. Um, Godard has told uh, an interviewer that, quote, three quarters of directors waste four hours on a shot that requires five minutes of actual directing. I prefer to have five minutes work for the crew and keep the three hours to myself for thought. <laughs> so he has that that whole I'm, I'm thinking I have a whole intent behind it, a lot of thought goes into it, but to actually create that scene does not require hours and hours of That's redoing right. and, you know, and careful, um, yeah. It, it does have that 
um, immediacy, the quality of something mm. that is it's a bit rough. I think in that regard, he's the absolute opposite of, of Hitchcock because Hitchcock said that he was almost bored senseless during the actual filming because he'd already seen the film in his head. He had yes. everything storyboarded down to the last detail. But mm. it's, it's interesting too that you mention that because we've talked about the film Breathless, his, his first film and, and, and one of his most revered, of course, an absolute kind of icon of the French New Wave. And I, I saw an interview once with um, one of the, the, the stars of the film, Jean-Paul Belmondo, <laughs> who was saying that they would, he and Gene Seberg, of course, mm-hmm. his co-star, would turn up to, to work each day and have no idea what was going to happen on that day. And some days yeah. nothing would happen at all because mm-hmm. Jean-Luc was kind of, you know, lost in his own thinking about what should happen. Yeah. There was so much that was improvised and mm. I, I can't express enough how much of a departure this was Style, from the cinema yes. at the time, which was very texturally heavy. Yeah. Um, and this this was absolutely radical for the time. And I think that really comes through in that film too. There's that kind of and fresh, all those location shoots, they're outside. Absolutely. They're on the street. They're away from the studio, yeah. filming you know, society as it was, which was a great you know, motivator for those filmmakers. But Godard very quickly moved beyond that into further and further into abstraction. Um, you know, realism really wasn't his thing at all. No, no. <laughs> and uh, and somewhat controversially, um, I'll finish on this, uh, which is that uh, Michelle Piccoli, who you mentioned, mm. Roberta, mm. as being playing Paul, who yes. is the husband of uh, Camille. Yeah, <laughs> I he saw is. him I, very quickly. I yeah. saw him um, in Venice a few years ago, and I I, I gasped audibly. I was just, you know, I mean, he must be ninety three or something, but it's still Michelle Piccoli. Yeah, it's <laughs> a big deal. Um, and he he actually said he told a reporter at the time that they were making Contempt. Mm-hmm. He said, "I'm not the male lead of Contempt. He is. Yes, he." wanted me to wear his tie, his hat and his shoes, and we're talking about Goddard, Mm. he said, I'm convinced that he is trying to explain something to his wife in contempt. And uh, and it's mm. really interesting. And we're talking mm. about Anna Karina here, yes. the um, the first wife That's who right. was an amazing woman. Mm. But uh, she was at the Melbourne International Film Festival a in two thousand and nine. Mm. Yeah, That's I right. saw her with David mm-hmm. Stratton, yes. and she loved Jean Luc as well. And she had a similar kind of view that, you know, yeah, we had fights, but there was passion, and we loved each other at the time. So, you know, it is great to see yeah. if that you're not fighting. Mm. You're not thinking hard yeah, enough. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Creative tension. That's what I take away from a Goddard film. <laughs> so true. Uh, we're going to have to leave it there, but we can. Um, anyone can see both of these films. Please at Acme. do come and see them at Acme. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, Le Redoutable, I'm going to give that a go. Goddard Mon Amour is on for another week or so, although I think we've just added a late matinee on June 16, but uh, the season runs to about June 12, so please check the website. And uh, Le Mépris will screen twice more uh, this coming weekend. There's an evening session on Saturday and a Sunday afternoon matinee. Um, So check it out. Excellent. And feel free to come and study the films at Melbourne University. Oh, yes, do. Hell yes. I did. (laughs) So did I. And and it shows, Rebecca. (laughs) Excellent plugs from my guests there. Uh, I'm really impressed with how they've picked this up. And uh, congratulations to them. Thanks for for coming in, um, Dr. Andrew McGregor, who is a lecturer in French studies at the University of Melbourne and also um, has studied cinema in Paris, I saw in his bio, and also Roberta Ciabara, film programmer at ACME. Uh, we've been speaking about Redoutable Godard Mon Amour and Le Mépris screening at ACME. You 
are tuned to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.